This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about vaccine passports or proof that you have been fully vaccinated. And let's bring in Kerry Bowman, Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Temerty Faculty um, of, of Medicine Expertise. And uh, Kerry, Dr. Bowman, uh, what are the ethical issues involved with this? I mean, the government has said they're going to give people advantages for being fully vaccinated, but with that is going to have to come some kind of proof. Yeah, well, Libby, there, there's many. And again, let, let's just clarify, because there's a world of difference ethically between, and practically, between whether we're speaking internationally or domestically. So internationally, most of us, and I've been listening to, to some of your previous callers uh, and, and interviews. And most of us realize this is going to happen. The great question is, how is it going to happen? But domestically is an, an issue. And I'm going to flip back and forth. You know, there really is an element of surveillance to this. And most people are so sick of this pandemic. They'll say, so what? Let's just do it. Um, so there is an element of surveillance. You know, freedom of movement really is a democratic right. And there are going to be people left behind. And yes, we can roll our eyes and say they should be vaccinated. But, you know, they, they have their rights, too. And there's people that can't be vaccinated. And, you know, what's going to be on this form? Or is it a form? Is it an app? Who knows? You know, our wonderful government managed to introduce the concept of preferred and non-preferred vaccines. Deadly kind of language. Um, are we going to be traveling to nations that say, you know what? I don't, I don't like AstraZeneca or I don't like Moderna. Who knows? And, you know, it would be their prerogative if they don't like the kind of vaccine you have. So elements of surveillance are going with it, freedom of movement. And also, how is this information stored? Uh, will it have other medical information? It's bound to have our age. It's bound to have what vaccine we've had. Many people would say, so what to both those things? But it could have implications. Uh, and, uh, Carrie, do you have any inkling of the legality, not the legalities, but the practicalities? If, if the government has just started talking about this, uh, how long will it take them to roll it out? I mean, Israel had one in February. Well, what we need now is global and international cooperation. And, you know, we meet, need to be mindful of a very, very important fact here. Things are getting tremendously better by the day in, in countries like Canada. Um, there's a lot of indications the pandemic's getting far worse globally. So those of us that are talking about travel, this is going to be a very elite type of thing. Uh, you know, I personally work globally in both Africa and South America. I have no idea uh, what kind of restrictions I will be faced with when I have to get back to work uh, with, and whether they're going to like the kind of vaccine I have. And, you know, what will it be? I, I, too, have a piece of paper. It's not as crumpled up as yours, I saw, but um, <laughs> but uh, I folded it. But but it, that's all I've got. It's not and I don't crumpled. even know what's coming. Uh, Martin, uh, I mean, is it a, are people traveling now just taking a chance? They are. They are definitely. My call inquiry has jumped tremendously, even as of today, because now there's Expecting that when they travel, they don't have to come back and ensure the three-day hotel quarantine for sure is going to be out of the picture. And the 14-day could go down to as little as one day if you've got results. So activity is starting to happen. And there's a ton of snowbirds still away that now have been riding this out. And guess what? Now they see the, the end in sight that they can come back, not have to do the Buffalo Shuffle, and can come back like normal and come through an airport avoid hotel quarantine because there isn't one anymore and they will be able to go home get their test done and be out of quarantine in one to two days so it's all good but just what is this document going to look like especially for returning canadians where are they going to get this document it's not the canadian government that's going to send to them so that's going to be a whole 
interesting scenario logistically could be a nightmare. And, and uh, you know, since, since I'm the one asking the questions, uh, what would you say to my husband who is determined to fly to Germany in a couple of weeks? Well, yeah, good luck. <laughs> you both are going to find out what's required, and I still don't think they're going to go just off this this piece of paper. I I think they've got to roll out something that is physically going to be a barcode on your phone or legitimately a laminated document. So I don't know how this happens by June twenty seventh, from your perspective. That's for sure. Uh, so there's a chance that they what just won't let him in. I guess he better call the consulate. No, it definitely yeah. has to, and 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 see, and also. Your other guest makes a the doctor makes a great um, point about whether AstraZeneca, not that he's had it or not, would would yeah. accept it in some countries. Imagine flying that whole way and you find out, oh, I'm sorry, you can't get on the plane and go back home again. So, and what about the Sputnik one they're talking out of Russia? Like, you've got to be really careful here that it's clearly laid out what is going to be accepted in every country one wants to go to. Oh, I can't imagine. If they, if they exclude AstraZeneca, they're excluding uh, everyone in the UK, basically. Absolutely. And that would be bad for business. So I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum. I mean, um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we are going to be exploring this further because, you know, we brought up, it's, it's not just for international travel. And there are certain kinds of venues that are going to demand proof of vaccination for certain kinds of maybe concerts or whatever. There's this big question about workplaces. Can you mandate that your people are vaccinated? Right now, they can't even mandate it for workers in healthcare, though uh, it's very odd to me because, you know, I counted nine vaccinations that teachers are required to take, but I guess uh, people value children more than older people in long-term care, Carrie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all these things are happening. The timeline is just unbelievable because, it, you know, we've got such high numbers of vaccinated Canadians. Even doubly vaccinated is rising quickly, and none of us uh, have any idea what we're looking at. And again, look, it's not justification. Some people need to work um, and, and, and work internationally. So it's imminent. And um, I, you know, I can't see anything but a barcode being acceptable, but I don't know. And I'll tell you, you know, the amount of times I've had to pay bribes just with a yellow card because they didn't like the look of what they saw in there. Well, that um, has something you know, to do with the places you were going, maybe more than the look of your card. No, I know. I know. But, you know, there's lots of people that work all over the place and there could be all kinds of things. So I need to be in South Africa. South Africa's not using AstraZeneca. Does that mean they're going to let me in? Like, who knows? You know, um, there, there's so many unknowns. And what I do think, Libby, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, I don't think we're going to get much traction on this nationally, maybe between provinces. But when it comes to pubs and sports events and restaurants, things are moving so quickly. My guess, and I, I stress the word guess, is it, 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 it's not going to fly. It meaning vaccine passport. But globally, it's going to happen and maybe interprovincially for sure. Uh, Marty, why are we behind the eight ball on this, in your view? Well, I think it all had to do with the vaccination numbers. And until we got to what our prime minister thought was close to 75 percent, this would not happen. And, and it's sort of making sense. He makes another interesting point today that I should bring up is that Canada is going to be a very attractive place to travel to for international visitors. Our case counts are low. Our vaccination numbers are high. It's going to be a very safe place in people's minds to come to. So we have to be wary of that also and realize that there will be tremendous amount of travel to Canada this summer, hopefully, and then next year for sure. So keep out a look on that one because uh, we got to make sure that people are fully vaccinated that are now coming into our country. Uh, yeah. And uh, we have a tourism industry that needs to recover. And uh, Manulife, one of the biggest insurers, recently announced that it is going to expand its coverage for fully vaccinated insured. Can you tell us a bit about that, yeah. Martin? Yeah, that's actually was last week. And it was the first I call recognition again of people being fully vaccinated. Bottom line is, 
if you can prove it, albeit it's only going to be a claim time, it's not at application time, your amount for COVID-related illness will be $5 million, not $1 million. That's okay. I don't see that as a game-breaker, because if you've had both vaccines, I don't see you ending up, per se, on a ventilator for a half a million dollars in a U.S. hospital. But the one that is is once the level four avoid all cruise travel is lifted, then Manulife will cover individuals in their normal policy for cruises if they have had both shots. So that would mean if you haven't had both shots or only one shot and you go on a cruise ship and it is a floating Petri dish, you would not be covered unless you have both vaccinations through Manulife. And no other insurer has even come out with their policies yet. So this is going to be interesting to watch. Uh, and right now, can you give travel insurance to uh, somebody like my husband who has a piece of paper? Absolutely. Well, we're not even asking for it at time of application. Remember, it's only if there's a claim, then you say, okay, have you had both shots? Show me proof at that point that you have. So that's what's a little backwards here. I almost would like it rather at time of application that you're answering, have you been fully vaccinated? You check off yes. This one's a little opposite. It's not going to ask you or even show proof of anything unless you had a particular claim and now they want to see if you're able to pay it out. Okay. And uh, Carrie, Dr. Bowman, um, where does this leave people like you? You want to go work abroad? Yeah, in the lurch. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to break any rules, that's for sure. But I also, you know, and it's not just me, but, I, you know, airfares have to be booked. I've got major things uh, that have to be planned for. The, the amount of uncertainty for the summer of 2021 is phenomenal. It, it's wonderful that the numbers are improving. But look, I've said this before and I say it again. We could, you know, this, this entire pandemic challenge we're in. The big challenge will be global because there's many indications that the pandemic's getting worse globally, not better. So, you know, you're going to have these wealthy countries like ours where we're doing well. And, um, you know, this is not over till it's over, as you have heard so many people say. So we'll see. Okay, Martin, anything else you want to leave us with? Yeah, I wonder about the ones who've only had one dose, so they're not going to qualify for being considered fully vaccinated. And I wonder also how they're going to treat children, both 12 and older that have had only one dose or 12 and under who have had none because there is none available. How will they be treated when they get to a border? They can't show that they're fully vaccinated. So these are things I'm looking out for. But if I had to think positive, I would say we're going in the right direction. And by early July, I think after July 4th, will be on the road to recovery with no hotel quarantine anymore and a limited quarantine period at home. Carrie, anything else from you? Nope. Let's just wait and see where this goes. I mean, I, to some extent, Libby, I think Canada probably has this right, in which, yes, we're going to do this for, for big international travel, including the United States. And, and I guess when I say this, and we're really going to try very hard not to do this within our own country for pubs and sports events and everything else. And I think that's pretty well the best we can do. Right. So many questions. Uh, that's all the time we have, though. Thank you so much, Dr. Kerry Bowman and Martin Firestone. Uh, great conversation. Very interesting. <laughs> Thank okay. you, Libby. Thanks for having me, Libby. Take care. Okay, everybody, take care. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In breaking news, we have learned that fully vaccinated Canadians will no longer have to quarantine in a hotel when they return home. Instead, they will have to self-isolate while waiting for the results of a COVID test. And if it's negative, that'll be it. We're awaiting the details, including when this might take effect. But it begs the question, how will people prove they've had both shots? Yesterday, Manitoba became the first province to introduce a vaccine passport. Here's Premier Brian Pallister. With this card, you will be permitted to travel within Canada without having to self-isolate upon your return to Manitoba. You will be exempt from the self-isolating requirements if you're deemed a close contact by public health. In other words, if you get a call from public health notifying you've been in close contact with someone who's had COVID, because you have this card and because it's evidence that you've been vaccinated twice, 
you won't have to self-isolate as a result. Okay, well, first of all, uh, for those of you who are following this on video online, I am holding up the proof of my first vaccination. It is a printout on a piece of paper. Uh, Any 10-year-old could fake this. Uh, So I don't know where that would work. Uh, There are reports that Ottawa is in talks with the provinces on this, but there are no signs of an agreement, uh, let alone a timetable. And this despite the fact that 80% of Canadians are in favor of some kind of vaccine passport. And for context, Israel was the first to introduce a vaccine passport or green pass back in February and an EU digital COVID certificate is being accepted in seven countries ahead of a full launch on July the 1st. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, and David Scholz, Executive Vice President of Leger. Hello, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Let us begin with Marty. And uh, you've said Canada is uh, way behind the eight ball on this. I have. And finally, I think we see some light at the end of the tunnel after today's announcement or what is expected very soon. Finally, fully vaccinated people are going to get some form of recognition and be able to travel again, hopefully sooner than later. Okay. And uh, David Scholes, I mean, what was the holdup given the extent of the support among Canadians for this, if for no other reason they want to travel, let alone returning home without having to stay in those quarantine hotels? Well, Canadians, you know, we do want to travel, but only about 17% of us would travel to the U.S. even if the borders were open just because we're still a little cautious. But then I think that's what's playing into the whole desire for a vaccine passport. 82% of Canadians say to travel by plane, you should have some sort of vaccination passport to do so. So anything that involves large crowds or travel, uh, Canadians are in support of passports. Uh, Martin Firestone, uh, so we don't really have anything now. Uh, if, uh, if, if a Canadian wants to travel to, say, Germany, can they get in with a piece of paper like I was holding up? At this point, there is absolutely nothing specific as to what you're even supposed to show. And that's a great question. Is it a piece of paper? Is it a barcode on your phone? These things all have to come out in the next couple of weeks, as I suspect this will take place. I would think after the July 1st Canadian holiday weekend or the July 4th U.S. weekend. At that point, there's got to be this item you can hold in your hand, and I don't think it's a crumpled piece of paper either. (laughs) Oh, I guess mine got a little crumpled in my purse. And I I have to say, full disclosure here, I I do have a, a sort of personal reason for doing this. My husband is intent on taking this uh, kind of long-planned, on-again, off-again trip to Germany on June the 27th. I think he's a little, uh, I won't use the word nutty for doing that. Um, He got his second shot today. He'll be fully vaccinated, but um, there could be trouble ahead, right, Martin? There could be, for sure. They've, they've got to be careful. And every country, I don't know how they're all going to be on the same page as to what they're going to accept and whether it's legitimate and whether it's accurate. And that's going to be the biggest challenge facing anybody, yet alone going into provincially. The minute you leave and go into the U.S., what are they going to accept? The minute you go to Germany, what are they going to accept? This is going to be the problem that we have to get around. And I'm sure they've got some ideas and how they're going to present it. Okay. Uh, David Scholes, uh Do you think the government was just kind of behind on this or, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, just the usual provincial territorial squabbling, you know, Manitoba is doing its own thing. They don't want, you know, the Ottawa telling them what to do. We've got Jason Kenney who said it was a privacy issue. How, how do, how does this kind of political stuff jive with what actual people who want to travel again are thinking? Well, I think Martin was correct. It's something that we certainly have to start looking at much quicker And the Canadian population has been saying for 
quite some time that they would be they would be very comfortable and they're kind of expecting. So if someone's coming from the U.S. to Canada, there is an expectation that they will be able to either quarantine or show that they are uh, they have some they have their vaccines already and it's in a legitimate form that's not able to be counterfeited to uh, to your point with your crumpled uh, first vaccination. I'm straightening it up now. Come on. (laughs) uh, um, It goes further. It isn't just about travel. It's also about attending events, going to work. Uh, Canadians are very much in favor of having this recognition. And and remember, 86% of Canadians, as of a week ago, are planning on getting vaccinated or have already. So we are certainly on a path to a large percentage of Canadians being vaccinated and they want to be able to do more and they want their vaccinations to help them be able to do more. Uh, right. And a lot of people are complaining we're going to deal with this uh, a, a, a touch later that, that they'll be discriminated against if they don't have that vaccine passport. But, you know, there's always this question of, of the rights of the individual versus uh, the greater good. Right. But I do think provincially versus federally, yeah. you will have some issues coming out of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are already provincial issues. And we saw, Martin, with uh, with Manitoba, their vaccine passport is, is going to allow different things than, than what what's contemplating federally, at least at this time. Yeah, well, theirs, theirs is out because they are the ones that had a 14-day quarantine period if you came back into that province, even from other provinces in Canada. So that's what that's addressing. But the federal level is a whole different story. That one's going to be fully vaccinated individuals who are traveling abroad, including U.S. and internationally. So he's definitely addressed his own little personal situation, but this is by no means the the wide spectrum of the the worldwide effort to make this uh, vaccine passport work. Okay. Uh, David Scholz, I know you have to leave us. What would you like to leave us with? Uh, well, I'm going to leave you with the. I was going to talk about the fact that 86% of Canadians are vaccinated or on their way to that. But one last thing, we've been tracking uh, at Leger the COVID response in Canada for 14 months now, right from day one. This past week is the first time more Can- more Canadians were not afraid of getting the vaccine than those who were afraid. So for the first time, we've seen a positive shift. Uh, where people are starting to recognize that this could be could be becoming over shortly. So positive news. Okay, uh, Martin is staying with us. I'm going to take one call before we go to break. Lee in Ontario. Hi, Lee. Hi. Thank you for taking my call, Libby. I listen to you every day. Thank you. I got a piece of paper that came out of a machine that you would put your Visa or card in, and it spit this little thing out. Two inches by four inches, and uh, Ministry of Health, my name, my health card, my date of birth, the day that I got the, um, and the agent, the type of COVID it was, the product name, as well as the dosage, and that I received two valid doses, and where I got them, and who gave it to me. Yeah, but does it have a barcode? It does on the top. It's all blacked out. The barcode is blacked out. Okay, it's blacked uh, my, out. my little crumpled piece of paper that everyone is on my case about has all the same information. <laughs> oh, really? And, and, and if if you trust me, um, uh, you know it's it's accurate. But uh, but but how somebody at a border control would react to this? It doesn't even have like the the logo is obviously photocopied or something. Um, I don't know. But Lee, thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. May I just finish that sentence because the doctor said to me, you can put this into your passport if you're going on a trip. Of course, I'm a senior. I don't know if I will be. And uh, you could use this if they don't give you a regular passport or, or something that goes into your passport. Okay, well... Uh, all the information on it. Okay, well, uh, you put it in your passport and see if it works. Yes. Let us know. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we've got to take a break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we will be talking to Martin Firestone and Carrie Bowman, who is a medical ethicist. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today, we begin with the legalities surrounding the targeted, the horrific targeted attack on a Muslim family in London, Ontario. The suspect, 20-year-old Nathaniel Veltman, has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Both the Prime Minister and Premier Ford, among others, have called it a terrorist act. We know that the RCMP is working with local police on the possibility of adding terrorism charges. What difference would that make? And this has all the hallmarks of a hate crime. Uh, should he be charged with that? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And first, let's go to criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Hi, Ari. Libby, always great to be on with you. Thank you. Uh, it's been a while. So uh, what do you make of the charges that have been brought against him and this talk of adding terrorism charges? So this is a conversation that is not being had widely enough in Canada for a number of reasons. Number one question that affects how I answer this is what is the interest of Canadians in terms of what happens to Mr. Veltman? If your interest as a decent, thoughtful Care about caring, law-abiding Canadian is that Mr. Veltman, with as much ease as possible, if he can be shown to be guilty, and if what London police have released is true, which is an unprecedented release of motive and information faster than almost any case I've ever seen, if everything London police says is true, and you want Mr. Veltman to spend the rest of his natural life behind bars, you do not want terrorism charges laid. You want the charges as they are, which are first-degree murder, four counts, and attempt murder. That's the little boy who's now left to not have a family, because that is the simplest and clearest pathway to a conviction. And why do I say that, Libby? Because we have seen in the past, and as a criminal defense lawyer, I can tell you this is uh, without question, that if you go down the road of terrorism-like charges, You give the defense lawyer more fodder to defend the case. You put more meat on the defense lawyer's bone to argue and fight those charges, which will, particularly in a day and age of COVID, necessarily extend, quite likely, the proceedings. So what the police have charged with right now, Libby, again, if you're a Canadian that wants Mr. Veltman to spend the rest of his life behind bars, we can talk about will he really spend the rest of his life behind bars, that's a very interesting question that Canadians aren't talking about yet. Terrorism charges, in my view, are purely political at this point and add nothing to this prosecution. Okay, well, uh, let's get to that. And and the next question is, if this is deemed a hate crime, what difference does that make? Okay, so this is something that was misunderstood widely across Canadian media yesterday. So, Your listeners right now, Libby, see this crime, and we all in our minds go, this must be a hate crime. This has to be a hate crime. And what I mean by that is that they think it's a hate crime in the criminal code. It is not. Now, you might say, uh, Ari, how in the world is this not a hate crime? It's hate-based and done for hate. That gets you into the terrorism section of 83 of the code. But a hate crime in Canada, and you and I have talked about this in years past, is much more in terms of speech and inciting genocide and inciting through words or documents or pamphlets uh, genocide or genocide type or hatred type of uh, information against a particular class, Jews, Muslims, Asians, you pick it. The reason people use hate crime is because the criminal code talks about hate being an enhancement on sentencing at sentencing stage, but Libby, you well know, and I think your listeners well know, that first-degree murder is not a discretionary sentence. It is life in jail with no possibility of parole for 25 years. And it's the parole issue I foreshadow with you, Libby, is the fascinating issue here that nobody's talking about. But the hate crime enhancement, I'm using a U.S.-type term where, you know, if you push somebody on the street, Libby, because you know, Libby has turned into a racist, which Libby would never be. If you get convicted of assault, 
but you do it because you've turned into a racist, that judge can take into account the fact that you did it for a hate, anti-religious animus. But for murder, with a mandatory life sentence, Libby, it makes no difference. Okay, uh, Ari, so if the suspect is found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder, how much time does he serve, and is he ever eligible for parole? So this is the question that I think doesn't get enough attention. I think this is the most fascinating aspect of this story. So let me tell you what the fascinating aspect is. You'll remember the mosque shooting in Quebec, uh, Libby? Of course. That's what this, this story, believe it or not, is intrinsically tied to what you and I are going to talk about, including with your next guest for the next 20 minutes, which is, Bissonneuve, the law had changed years ago. The Harper government, you know, some called him Voldemort. You're not allowed to say his name. But the Harper government said, wait a minute. Why, if you kill four or five Canadians, does each life that you kill and take not count for parole ineligibility? What that means in English is whether you kill one, two, or three, or four, or 12 people, you can still apply for parole after 25 years. Now, you may not get it but you can still apply for parole after 25 years, which is a message that says each individual life is not worth something mathematically. So the law was changed to allow consecutive periods of parole ineligibility. This is also an issue in Manassian, as you'll recall. The Quebec Court of Appeal in Bissonneuve, who got a whole bunch of different sentences, I'm not going to get into the the facts of that, but the Quebec Court of Appeal said to not allow Bissonneuve or somebody like Bissonneuve to kill, sorry, to not allow him to apply for parole ever in his life is cruel and unusual punishment. So the Quebec Court of Appeal said, nope, you're not allowed to stack these parole and eligibility periods. Every life does not count. That issue has gone to the Supreme Court. And why does it matter so significantly, Libby, to end my answer? Because as you well know, Nathaniel Veltman is 20 years old, and that means that he could, if he's convicted, with the way the law is right now before the Supreme Court weighs in, apply for parole in and around his 45th birthday. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite incredible. I'm going to bring in now to join us Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Always a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, so what do you make of the fact that the RCMP and possibly CSIS uh, are working with the local police to see if terrorism charges are warranted. And and, uh, another question I had about this is that we had uh, some of the leading politicians Mm. in the country have already said this is a terrorist attack. So uh, even if such a thing is warranted, uh, doesn't that poison the well? Yeah, I've got a lot to say on this, not surprisingly, given what you and I have talked about in the past. First of all, I really want to thank your, your other guests. He said some fascinating things with which I agree 100%. Um, the reason why London Police Services, and by the way, I'm from London, Ontario, so this kind of strikes home for me. The reason why they are dealing with, with the RCMP and possibly CSIS, my former employer, is they want to determine, is there any other information out there uh, on this young man, which, which may have come up in the course of possible terrorism investigations, which either CSIS would have been doing or the RCMP, so that they can better fill out uh, their knowledge on who this individual was. And the most important thing, and you really, your guest referred to this just a few minutes ago, what is the motivation? Because to lay a terrorism charge under Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code, you have to demonstrate that, it, that an act of violence was planned or perpetrated for religious, political, or ideological reasons. That's what the Criminal Code says. So London police may not have enough information now. They, they want to go to their partners and say, uh, what do you have? Um, as to politicians, the Prime Minister, uh, Premier Ford, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling it an act of terrorism. Um, I, I hate to be um, so forward, uh, Libby, but this is egregious. They've decided this is terrorism before any facts are in, and this may, in fact, make the, the prosecution more difficult because the politicians have already decided. Now, they can say whatever they want. They're politicians, right? When, it, when push comes to shove, the Crown will decide which charges to go through with based on the greatest chance of success. And as your earlier guest or your other guest just said, 
the greatest chance of success is first-degree murder because that's easier to prove than terrorism because you don't have to prove motive for first-degree murder. All you have to prove is premeditation. Why he did it is irrelevant. Did he do it? Did he plan it? That's all you need. I don't know about you, Libby. I don't read mine. I don't have crystal balls. And unless the suspect confesses, unless you read it, it sounds like he did. Something online. Well, it sounds like it. But unless there's some kind of detailed manifesto with I did this for reasons X, Y, or Z, it's really, really hard to prove motive. So I'm with your guest. First degree murder is the correct choice. And we shouldn't be going down the terrorism road until we know an awful lot more about the young man, his circumstances, and why he did it. Ari, you mentioned Alec Manassian, and I was wondering if there is some kind of parallel there beyond the weapon used, the truck, because Manassian was very clear he was targeting women, but I don't think there was a discussion of of anything beyond the murder charges, which are are serious enough. Uh, First of all, that's correct. Um, Manassian is a bit of an odd outlier case. You'll remember, and your audience will remember, why autism raised so many eyebrows in terms of his defense team properly, not, not, not throwing any shade at the defense team, trying to bring what's called a not criminally responsible defense. Certainly, one could make the argument that what he did was an act of terrorism. At its core, the word terrorism, even in the criminal code, is not meant to have a wonky meaning, but just to have this make sense. The terrorism provisions have much more importance when somebody is financing a terrorist organization or a listed group. If Libby's Nimer is sending hundreds of thousands of her Zoomer income to... Quit picking on me, Ari. (laughs) I know, but you have to have some levity to a conversation. Um, That is why you have 83, much more than for a situation like this, which other criminal code charges um, make... Or, or can cover for quite well. If you go deeper into the terrorism sections, again, which is why Manassian really, a lone wolf, that term is very important for our conversation today, by the way, Libby. I believe it will likely be that Veltman was a lone wolf. And no matter how much screaming and yelling Jugmeet Singh does in the House of Commons, how much money is thrown at these issues, how much more taxpayer dollars are spent on this, you will never be able to stop lone wolves, whether it's in Canada, the U.S., or in Western Europe, as we all know. So when you get into the section of the criminal code about terrorism, it's to give the federal authorities, this is at the federal level, much more powers to seize bank accounts, to stop the funding, to stop the financing. I just think here, even though you have every politician using this as their 10 minutes of whatever you want to call it, I have a deep cynicism to what I'm seeing in the last couple of days. Yeah, I but, agree with you <laughs> to well, a certain you're extent. you're probably one of the only ones to say it out loud because I get screamed at for saying it. I think it's all... I mean, very, I think it's a mix of... Sorry? I think it's a mix of, of, of sincerity and, and cynicism. Uh, yeah, and, and, that, and that's fair. But at the end of the day, again, we have to go back to, you look at the thousands of people You look at the thousands of people that showed up in London, Ontario last night, physically, by the way. I don't mean on Twitter, which you know I hate and call anti-social media. These are people at the end of the day that want to see justice served. Forget the speeches of Trudeau and Ford and Singh and the Bloc and the Green Party, who are all there for all sorts of reasons that this segment isn't about. If you're one of the thousands that shows up last night, You want to ensure that justice is served, and justice is not served with a political agenda that contributes nothing to the prosecution and gives a defense lawyer like me much more room to work with. You do it in a way that ensures Nathaniel Veltman goes away, not gently into that good night, but to a prison cell right next to Paul Bernardo. Uh, Let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, boy. If I ever get in trouble, I hope Ari Goldkind's my defense lawyer. He's a genius. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. I'll cut you know, my rate yeah. a little bit just for Ron. He was so nice. <laughs> you know, the, what he just said about the lone wolf, um, that is the biggest problem. I mean, I, 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 before I even lone wolf him up, I was going to say the problem is how do you ban the Internet? All of this stuff. Um, is coming over there, the hate literature, the, all the chat rooms and everything else. How do you ban all these? And how do you prevent lone wolves? This is the biggest problem. 
You know what? I'm going to let Phil Gursky take that. Thanks very much for that question, Ron. I think it gets to the heart of it. Uh, thanks, Libby. Niggling point. <laughs> I don't like the term lone wolf. I prefer a lone actor. Lone wolves are romantic figures. Lone actors are not. Um, it is more challenging. I mean, obviously, you know, I was involved in the Toronto 18 investigation when I was at CSIS back in 05-06. It's much easier to run human sources. It's much easier to run surveillance. When you've got larger groups of people, you have you have a, a, a larger number of entry points, if you know what I mean. Um, you can get federal court warrants to, to intercept more communications. You get a better picture. It is obviously a challenge when it's an individual. And in this case, you've got a guy who was apparently he was known to police, but no criminal record. But did he have a large profile? Um, he was an introvert, from what I've read. Again, unconfirmed sources. How do you run a human source against an introvert who doesn't talk to people? So it does complicate things. And, and I think from a security intelligence and law enforcement perspective, you obviously have many tools in your toolbox. You, you have surveillance tools. You have, you know, warrant uh, interceptant. You have human sources. And the, when you're dealing with an individual who really doesn't have much of many associations, it's pretty tough. And so it does complicate things. And, you know, to expect CSIS and the RCMP and local law enforcement to stop every act of violence, uh, well, first of all, it's impossible. Uh, and secondly, it's unreasonable. They, they do the best job they can with the resources that they have. And they, they are successful more often than they're, than they're not successful. Unfortunately, in this business, Libby, um, you're only as good as your last failure. Uh, nobody cares when you get it right. Everyone care, Everyone points fingers at you when you get it wrong. Uh we are uh, going to have to uh, wrap things up now. Ari, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think at the end of the day, Libby, given uh, time pressures, I really do think people need to step back and take a look at what politicians are doing here. And, you know, this is a family that has been wiped off the map. To me, the politics are what makes this toxic. To me, the politics and so much of free speech issues and cancel culture and you're not allowed to express an opinion in Canada, that pushes people, in my view, talk about lone wolves or lone actors, that pushes people more to the extreme when they feel there's no place in Canada for them to express their views. That's something that I'm deeply concerned with in this country and in Western Canada, and sorry, the Western culture, that we're sort of extreme pushing people out into the fringes who would otherwise be able to say their piece. But the bottom line to me is, Libby, you have a family of five that have been mowed down. This is not a time for cheap political hack talking points so they We're all here. look what they look. This is very simply a police matter. This is a matter for a prosecutor in London. This is a matter for a straightforward prosecution and let Mr. Veltman be dealt with according to law without all of these politicians perverting all sorts of rights to a fair trial and changes of venues and all these other things. Let the legal system do its work. It will not fail the family or the citizens of London and this country. Uh, Phil, you get the last 20 seconds. Uh, I might hire Ari, too, if I need him. No, my, my last word is uh, let the police do their job. Let them gather the evidence. They will go forward the charges, as Ari said. Shut your pie hole when it comes to terrorism until we know more. Let the professionals do their job. And as Ari said, we're going to get a successful result. He'll be in prison for a long time. We should be satisfied with that. And that's, that's a sense of justice for the family, absolutely. So, you know, the T word should not be uttered until we know more about what actually happened. Okay, well, the very interesting take from both of you. Thank you so much, Ari Goldkind and Phil Gursky. And we're now going to continue the conversation about this terrible, terrible attack and uh, with a very interesting take. Uh, I am on the line with Jeff Bennett, who is a former London West progressive conservative candidate, and he wrote an extremely thoughtful post about his regret, how he, when he was canvassing, he came across all kinds of, I would say, uh, veiled racism uh, comments that he just kind of let go, and he regrets that. Jeff Bennett, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, tell us, what you were writing about. What was your experience as a candidate? I didn't suspect that it was going to take off to this degree. I was, I was writing it uh, thinking it would reach a, a few dozen of my, my, my childhood friends. 
and encouraging them to think a little bit more about systemic racism and the part that we all play in it. And more than anything, I, I live about a mile up the road from, from where this horrific tragedy occurred. I had driven past a couple of times, tears in my eyes, and I saw all of these Muslim families and the Muslim community coming together and, and, uh, and, and, and it was, it was heartbreaking. And it brought me back to 2014 when I ran in a provincial election. And, and then, and then I saw posts of people saying, you know, this is un- unthinkable in, in the city of London. This is not London. And that's, that's why I wrote the post because I feel like at its core, it is London, but it's also Ontario. It's, it's, it's almost every community in this country. Tell us what um, you wrote in the post. Tell, tell um, us what you encountered at the door that now bothers you. It was, it was a unique experience because I, I, I ran 10 months after a by-election. And in the by-election, the PC party candidate was a friend of mine named Ali Jabbar, a Muslim candidate, and, uh, and, and just a wonderful person and, and an old friend of mine. And then he decided not to run the following year. Even He should have won in 2013, but he faced all sorts of racist attitudes. And the, the whole election shifted towards talk of, Sharia and all of these things that it just shouldn't have been and focus on Ali's, Ali's family. And, and, uh, so then I ended up as the candidate in 2014. And, uh, so it was only 10 months after, after he had knocked on those very same doors. And when I would knock on the doors, I would hear comments like, Oh, we weren't expecting to see you here. I remember somebody saying, Oh, Bennett, that's a good English name. And, um, you know, Oh boy, this is a, we're, we're happy to see, see you. And it, and it became evident very quickly that, my experience knocking on the doors. These people were welcoming me with open arms, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, whether they were seeing themselves as, 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 as implying racist undertones or not, they, they were, they were pleasantly surprised to see a white guy with, with an English last name at their door, as opposed to what they had seen 10 months earlier. And my heart breaks for, for Ali having a very different experience in running for an election when he's an equally, if not more qualified candidate. And at the time when you heard stuff like that, uh, what did you think and what was your reaction? When you're running for politics, the reaction is thank you for your support and you move on. And that's what I regret now. And, and, and I've been friends with, with Ali ever since. And I, I feel like I haven't used my voice enough to, to uh, combat these things. And that, that was partly why, why I wrote the post, because... When encounter, when, when encounter, when you're at a dinner party and someone makes a racist remark, we in this country have a tendency to just tell that let's just, just sort of don't laugh too hard, but, uh, but don't, don't make a scene either. And when, you know, when Uncle Joe says, says something that's, that's racist and he, while he's screaming at the TV, just, that's just Uncle Joe. He was raised in a different time. He, and he grew up in Aurelia or he grew up in Timmins or he grew up in Cape Breton or whatever it happens to be. And, and, and we can't make those excuses anymore. At what point do we look in the mirror and say, this is, this is a baked-in problem. This is systemic racism, and it exists right across the country. And until we start to address our own role in this on an individual basis, day after day, and keep the conversation and be willing in those situations to speak up and say, hey, that's, 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 that's just not accurate, and it's not right what, you, what you're saying. And I regret that I didn't do that more at Doors. And uh, I'm trying very hard to uh, to do more of it going forward. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning the kind of reaction, because it was really very eye-popping to read what you wrote, and, and also the regret about saying thank you for your support, which which is what politicians do. It's 100% what politicians do, and that's why, and nobody wants to admit that, even yesterday. We, we, we act in a very reactionary fashion. All of the, the, the leaders of every major party are here. I was at the vigil last night. But we knew that. And, and they're talking about we, there's no place for racism in this country. Yeah. We knew that five days ago. And were you talking about it then? And we knew it five weeks ago. And we knew it five years ago. And we knew it 50 years ago. And we keep on pretending like this isn't. And, and then we react to these horrific events. But when do we get proactive about it? And when, when do we say, all right, let's, let's take action to do, to do something about this now. And that's, that's why I'm even speaking out about it because my concern is that five days from now, people, and already people will say, well, just uh, justice will, will be served. Will it? It won't, it won't change the underlying system. This kid grew up here in London, Ontario. There's, he's, he's not just crazy. He's not a one-off. There's, there's contributing factors to all of this stuff. And those contributing factors 
and his attitudes towards what makes people's lives worthwhile are baked in. They, society has contributed to that. And at some point, we need to examine what we're doing wrong. And the politicians need to act proactively instead of reactively and showing up at another horrible tragedy to say there's no place for this. Uh, that's, that's I know you thought. have to go. Um, just a, a final question is, is the problem that uh, we think we're better than this? I think so. And nobody wants to, to look in the mirror and admit that it's, it's very hard to look at yourself and, and think that you play any part in this. And nobody wants to do that. And nobody wants to look at their own party. And my party, uh, that I'm no longer involved, but uh, when I was running for the PC, the PC party never wants to discuss, oh, there, there, we might have a hard right faction of this. Of this, like, n- no, no, no. We that's not what we stand for. It's not what you stand for. But they're part of this organization. And until we all take a hard look in the mirror and be honest about what's what exists today, just like what happened with the, the discovery of that that grave mass grave in in Kamloops, we we got to be honest about. What, you know, let's not hold J- Johnny McDonald on a pedestal anymore. Like, let's let's uh, let's realize exactly. What there's context to all of it, but let's let's be honest about what has happened and what is happening in our country. Jeff Bennett, thank you so much for this. A really uh, very interesting and uh, honest bit of soul searching. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Uh, before we go to break, I'm going to take a quick call from Giovanni in Brampton, who's been waiting very patiently. Hi, Giovanni. Uh, yes, uh, good afternoon, uh, Southern Ontario here in Brampton and uh, all over Canada. Good afternoon or good morning or buongiorno. Buongiorno. Go uh, ahead, let Giovanni. Let me tell you something. Uh, let's not start to uh, condemn anybody. I just would like to know what 20-years-old man that driving a truck ate another car for eight crime. This is something that it could never happen here, but we have to all know that we have to get to the fact first. And when the fact comes along, then we will decide, the judge decide if the man is killed or not guilty. Uh, my heart goes to the family. You've got four people dead and one is in hospital. Thank you very much for your call, Giovanni. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to deal with some new breaking news. We've just learned that fully vaccinated Canadians won't have to stay in those quarantine hotels when they come back to the country. We'll get some more details. The question, of course, uh, how do you prove you're vaccinated? And we're going to delve into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.